Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Today, Nate welcomes J.D. Considine to discuss his concept of Dorian Gray music, the stuff that stays popular decade after decade and shows no signs of flagging in popularity. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by J.D. Considine to discuss his talk, The Dorian Gray Effect, or Why Some Recordings Don't Age While Others Do, which he delivered at the Museum of Pop Culture uh, virtual seminar at September 2020. J.D., welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. And I, I really enjoyed the talk. It's something that it addresses something directly that I've been sort of circling around on this program which is why some music has the power to last and other music doesn't. And you limit it to recordings, but if you'll indulge me, I'd like to expand it a tiny bit and throw some sheet music at you as well. But why don't you start with the incident that triggered this line of thinking in your mind? Well, I've always been aware of music in the public place. You know, I mean, back before COVID, when you'd go out, you'd almost always hear music in stores and malls. All sorts of places, and um, so I, I, because I pay attention, I wind up thinking about it. And one day I was in uh, my local grocery store, and they they were playing "Let's Stay Together" by Al Green, and this was about uh, 2010, 2011, and I thought to myself, you know, I mean, I love that record, but it's it was 40 years old at that point, and if I had been in a grocery store 
1971, when Let's Stay Together came out, would I have heard music from 1931? And you know that was that was kind of the the start of this whole thing because um, in 1971, music from 1931 would have sounded old, and the Al Green record didn't. I mean, granted, you know there was a remake that Tina Turner did in 1983, and so the song has had um, sort of extra currency as a result. But the question that all of this brought up in my mind was, why doesn't this sound old? And why do other things that I can think of do sound old? And so that's that was the the seed. And one track that, or I don't know if track's the right word, but one piece that you identify as not sounding old is very old. You go all the way back to the early 19th century and Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Why has that survived? Well, I mean, um, uh, here, well, for, first of all, yeah, it's it's part of the cultural tradition. So, I mean, that people have been performing it um, consistently since it was first performed, um, and I can't remember what year it was, but it was in the early 1800s. Um, and the thing is, is that um, there's a lot of music in the classical tradition that gets performed like that. And uh, some of it sounds old, but some of it you don't think – you know that it's old because you know that it's classical music, but it doesn't sound old, old the way that, for example, um, a Bach harpsichord piece sounds old. And I, when I was thinking about this, I, there's this book by um, uh, Matthew uh, Garrieri called The First Four Notes, which is basically a history of bum, 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 and its impact throughout Western cultures over the last two centuries. And he makes the point that, that, this, that, those, that phrase, that musical idea has had this enormous and changing uh, impact in the way people hear music, the way people understand culture, and so forth and so on. It was used as the V for victory uh, theme during World War II because the dot, 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 dash was Morse code for V. Um, but the Germans also used it uh, um, to uh, rally their troops. And, and so, I mean, it's, it has this tremendous history behind it. And so that's part of what it is. But the other thing is, is that because it's sort of been detached from the symphony hall through all of these historical uses, people just think of it, I mean, that's, you know, that's bum, 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 bum. I mean, they don't even necessarily know that it's Beethoven's fifth, but they know how it sounds. The interesting thing, though, is I, I went back and found a recording that, that Deutsche Grammophon put out. Um, a historical survey of uh, the Berlin Philharmonic, which included the very first recording of Beethoven's Fifth from 1913 with uh, Arthur Nikisch uh, conducting. And if you listen to that, that genuinely sounds old. I mean, part of it is the interpretation because the, you know, people don't really play Beethoven quite that way now. I mean, the tempos were a bit different. The phrasing was a bit different. But the biggest thing that was different it was the sound. I mean, it's very, very compressed, tinny sound, a lot of surface noise, so there's a sort of scratchy sound going on underneath the music. You, list, you play that for anyone, and they will immediately say, wow, this is old. But if you play them uh, a more recent uh, Berlin Philharmonic recording, like the one Sir Simon Rattle did in 2016, they won't think that it's old. They'll think that it sounds they say that sounds great. It sounds like being in a concert hall. And that is, um, I think, 
part of the Dorian Gray effect because what you're doing is you're recognizing music in a sort of extra musical fashion. You're you're you are identifying it as being this thing which is not really old or new because it's part of culture and it's just there. And there are a number of other classical pieces that have benefited from the same effect, but not all classical music has. What are some of the ones that, that are commonly familiar and why do you think they've survived? Well, I mean, you know, for example, um, Beethoven's Ode to Joy from, from the Ninth Symphony. The Ninth Symphony is um, probably the, the second most enduring of Beethoven's symphonies, uh, in part because, um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but the, the length of the compact disc was the uh, allegedly determined by an executive at Sony because they wanted to be able to fit the whole of Beethoven's Ninth on one disc. Um, and because it was such a popular classical piece and because typically it had been across two LPs. Uh, so that's, I mean, but the thing is that uh, beyond that, the melody, Ode, Ode to Joy, is, I mean, that's the EU um, anthem. So it's it's constantly being performed and, it, and it's sort of you know been removed from Beethoven to that effect. Also, um, uh, there are a number of church hymns, believe it or not, that have taken the melody and put sort of uh, religious text to it instead of the uh, the Schiller that uh, Beethoven used. So that's, that's one that has, has endured. But, you know, um, Beethoven's third, which many critics think was actually his best symphony, that's not as timeless in that sense because it's not been used in extra musical ways, the way that the, the ninth has. And I mean, there are other things like um, the William Tell Overture, which everybody on, the, on Earth thinks of as being the Lone Ranger theme. But there's this chase music in it, which gets referenced in so many different ways throughout popular culture that it, it's just, it, it's there. It's no more old than, um, uh, you know, Michelangelo's David is old. I mean, it's it doesn't look old. It's just been there for a long time. Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker is another one, which you know every Christmas um, it gets performed pretty much everywhere. Uh, almost everybody knows the main themes uh, from the, the the most popular dances in it. It's it just goes on and on. And, and I think anyone who's ever been uh, around um, little girls around Christmas time, it, you can't it, you can't miss how tremendously excited they get by this music. Um, handles hallelujah chorus. I mean, how many times have you heard that in, a, in an advertisement? You know, hallelujah. It's just, it's a meme almost. Uh, Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries uh, is, a, is another thing. Um, and I mean, most people think um, in terms of major pop culture uses of the scene in Apocalypse Now where the helicopters are coming in and they're playing the Ride of the Valkyries and it's uh, supposed to be the represent the military might of the United States. And um, when and it, it is a great piece of, of, of uh, cinematography, uh, of storytelling. But what's funny is I wound up reading later that what the helicopter pilots in Nam were most likely to play was not the Ride of the Valkyries. It was um, Led Zeppelin's Whole Lot of Love. <laughs> but, but that's not really – that doesn't have the sort of gravitas of, of Wagner. It doesn't sound like the gods are coming down in, in the same way. Um, and, and the last one I, have, I, sh I should mention it because you can't forget this one is uh, the Marche Funèbre from the um, Sonata Number no. Two and B Flat by Friedrich Chopin, which is the universal signifier now for funerals. 
bum, 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 bum. I mean, most people know it being played by, you know, 8-bit software since, you know, in their video games. But it's it's what people think of as funeral music. And the thing is, is up until Chopin wrote that, there was a different piece, which almost nobody today knows, called Dies Irae, which was, people know it because that's actually what they played in church at funerals. And, I mean, you can hear that in, you know, various classical pieces, like, um, Symphony Fantastique by uh, Berlioz, but you won't see it in movies as death music. You'll you'll have them. They'll be using Chopin. You, you know. Yeah, and let's go ahead and hear Al Green. Let's stay together. Al Green's Let's Stay Together, which is the song that started this train of thought for you. You were hearing it played in a grocery store 40 years after its recording date. And it occurred to you that the hits of 1931 would have sound grossly out of place at being played in a grocery store in 1971 or really anywhere public. What were some of the hits of 1931 or any of them that we'd be familiar with today? I think the only one, the only actual recording people would know would be Minnie the Moocher by uh, Cab Calloway. I mean, because it's it's a classic early jazz tune. There's a famous animation of it that uh, you can find on YouTube. A lot of people have covered it. Um, it it's it, it's really one of the few things from that era that would, it would, although it sounds old in some ways, it's one of the few things people would recognize it. Oh yeah, I know that tune. Um, most of the other ones, even if the, you might know the song, but um, the performances would be just completely uh, off your radar. I mean, I mean, Dream a Little Dream of Me by Wayne King and his orchestra. I mean, Mama Cass recorded that, but, you know, that's the only reason people would know. They wouldn't know Wayne King's version. Um, they wouldn't know, oh, gosh, um, there was a lot of Bing Crosby that year. There was uh, a lot of Ozzie Nelson. There were um, – it, it's – the one thing I should mention is that the the reference that I used for these um, charts is not actually like the Billboard charts today. It was something that was sort of cobbled together by uh, record sales and um, other sources because nobody maintained charts back then. Um, but uh, yeah, that's. I unfortunately have put my my copy of Joel Whitburn's Pop Memories, which is the source I used, into storage, so I can't dig it out to give you more names. But um, <laughs> that's all right. I, anyway. I, I was looking at some of them, and and there's a couple that were familiar to me. There's a, several that are wildly pretty unfamiliar, but uh, Just a Gigolo has stayed alive. David Lee Roth famously covered that in the '80s. Um, right. But yeah, most of them. Stardust, I think, has sort of a life. It's Known as a highfalutin tune these days, I think. Yeah. But I, not too I don't many think people. Too many people, people under seventy would could uh, hum it for you. Yeah, yeah. I've never been able to catch the melody. Though. <laughs> but, and and then there's Gershwin's "I Got Rhythm," which became a big um, modern jazz standpoint. But yeah, but most of this stuff, "When the Moon Comes Over the Mountain," "Sugar Blues," "By the River St. Marie," um, 
an evening in Caroline. It's uh, kicking the gong around, you know, all largely forgotten and would have sounded really alien. And so what's the number one factor that you think makes this stuff sound old? Is it just the recording quality? Um, well, the recording quality is, is obviously is part of it. But the other thing is, I mean, and this is uh, why I mentioned the Wayne King recording of Dream a Little Dream of Me in, in terms of the talk, is that if it was the musical performance style that was the real signifier, I think. Because yeah, if you cleaned the sound up on Wayne King's record, it would still sound old. Um, the, the, um, there's a great point of comparison between if you, his version and a version done by Ozzie Nelson, who was later the, uh, the dad and Ozzie and Harriet on TV. And it, the arrangements in terms of what the instrumentalists are doing aren't radically different, but the singing style is because Ozzie swings the melody. He sings. He sings it more like da 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 da. da. So you've got that little triplet style bounce, bum bum ba bum ba bum bum. Whereas the Wayne King version is dum dum da dum da dum dum. It's stiff and jumpy. It sounds not fun in the way that we've now hear music as being fun because it doesn't have. Um, Frankly, doesn't have any African American influence whatsoever. It's just uh, straight dotted eights and sixteenths, and that that was the way that um, orchestras that like Kings. I mean, because he comes out of the hotel orchestra, the society orchestra, you know, the, the type of, of ensembles that would be working at debutante balls and at cotillions and at uh, dances that hotels would hold in their uh, hotel lobbies or ballrooms. It was a very formal uh, kind of uh, rhythmic feel. And it went with um, this kind of formal dancing that was the beginning of ballroom dancing before music started being swung. And I think having things swung was a major, major turning point in the way that we perceive popular music because music from the time before people swung the, swung the rhythm just doesn't sound anything but old. And you talk about how there's succession of waves of styles and that up to a point in the 20th century, one style would replace another and the previous style would become completely passe. You had the sort of sweet pre-jazz dance orchestra music that Wayne King exemplifies, which was a dying trend even in 1931. But then you get into the cakewalk, which brings a little rhythm in, ragtime, which really syncopates it, stride, which takes it even, uh, it's not quite funky, but it's closer. And then hot jazz and swing come in in the 30s. And that's when stuff really starts to become more recognizable to us. What changed that trends are no longer so disposable as they are now, or as they were then? Uh well, um, part, recordings simply is, was the biggest factor because um, if if you look at the way popular music was sold before recordings became the the dominant vehicle to to d deliver music, um, you know it was people had sheet music and if they wanted to hear uh, something they would sit down and somebody would play it and they'd sing along and usually they'd want to do what was the the current stuff i mean they nobody it was not common for people to go dig down into the pile of sheet music and pull out something from 30 years ago unless they were getting together with friends to try to remember something um likewise with radio i mean radio then as now was interested in the hot the hit 
the current stuff. And so when radio played, when bands were on the radio, they were playing their current stuff. They were playing the new things. They were playing what would draw listeners to the radio station. It really, it's important to remember that disc jockeys did not exist in terms of being the dominant deliverer of music on radio until I think it was the um, uh, the big publisher strike in the 40s where um, the, the every ASCAP uh, artist just, just stopped recording and uh, they wouldn't go do radio broadcasts and so forth and so on. So they had to rely on records more than, than performances because that that's all that they had. Um, but uh, anyway, to so recordings were something. If you had a record, you always had that music. So you could you could just pull it out of the stack and put it on again, and it would sound the way it did the first time you heard it. Um, and so, new newness became much more of an obvious observable thing in that sense because you could you know you would be able to tell the difference between this year's hit and last year's hit. So that that was a, a, a major thing, but at the same time, it also kept um, it, it established certain uh, standards. I think you could say of performance that carried on. I mean, uh, we're t- since we're talking about jazz, um, let's think about when Louis Armstrong and um, King Oliver and uh, um, Jelly Roll Morton first emerged and their sound was very, very new and very, very um, rhythmically exciting. It was was, referred to at the time as being hot jazz, although these days people think of it more as Dixie. But, you know, um, it was hot. It was a very vibrant sound and it was a small group thing and it was very, very localized. I mean, initially it was, if you weren't in Chicago or New Orleans, you didn't hear it at all. But as um, the jazz rhythms uh, the jazz fad, you, you want to say, spread, the music moved to bigger ensembles and to more of, a, of a sound, what we know as the big band sound. And it kept the same rhythmic concepts that um, the, the hot jazz musicians were using, but played them slightly differently and um, extended them so that by the late 30s, hot jazz kind of sounded old, even though it had only been around for maybe 15 years. And then in the big band era, the 30s and 40s, big bands were the dominant mode of popular music in, in North America and in much of the Western world. Um, but then that ended, and you had people like um, Frank Sinatra and Doris Day and Perry Como um, became the, the dominant stars, and the big bands themselves sort of faded away. But a lot of the... the instrumental approaches that were used for the orchestras that backed these singers were based on what the big bands were doing. So it's not like the music disappeared. It sort of got taken over by something else. And so if you didn't have that something else, it sounded old, but it didn't completely, you know, was not completely erased off of the radio waves. Let's go ahead and hear uh, Beethoven's famous Fifth Symphony by Sir Simon Rattle and the Berlin, Berlin Philharmonic from 2016.
And that was Sir Simon Rattle conducting the Berlin Philharmonic doing Beethoven's Fifth Symphony in 2016. So that's an example of immortal music. And, and you're talking about a period that really fascinates me, which is this era when Frank Sinatra, Doris Day, Ella Fitzgerald, and others who had come out of the swing era as pop singers mm-hmm. sort of were elevated into not quite art song, but getting there. People like they were doing albums, for example, and, and marketing to more of an upscale thing in competition with cheap 45s being sold by R&B singers and these young upstarts like Elvis Presley and others. So that sort of tributary really fascinates me because it was you know, a deliberate choice by people like Artie Shaw to start doing songs that were a little older, but they were saying, I'm going to do the best material. So songs like Cole Porter, George Gershwin, et cetera, that we think of now as the Great American Songbook as the foundation repertoire for modern jazz. It's got this very highfalutin stuff, but it was originally published and popularized as pop music of the moment. And so it was kind of an artificial construct by Artie Shaw and Frank Sinatra and others who self-consciously went back to those songs because they valued them and have kind of kept them alive artificially. Do you think that experiment has succeeded? I mean, obviously it succeeded through the 50s and 60s, but and and we've seen Tony Bennett and Amy Winehouse duetting, you know, just 10 years ago. Amy Winehouse obviously died tragically young. Do you see that repertoire continuing to stay alive or just sort of random bits of it floating to the surface? Um, yes and no. Um, the, there are two things that I, I want to point out about that, that strike me as being kind of the uh, mechanism underneath all of this. One is that many of these songs um, came from shows. They were written for the stage, and not all. I mean, if it, there's a book, Great American Song, um, that, um, and of course, as soon as I say the name of the book, I, the author's name flies out of my head. Is a survey of the major songwriters from the um, the Great American Song book. And it was uh, went composer by composer by composer and, and goes through various well-known songs and tells you what shows they came from. And in many cases, the shows were so ephemeral that uh, he didn't even know what they were about. For example, the um, uh, All the Things You Are was um, uh, from a show called Warm for May. And at this point, nobody knows whether they're talking about the month or some girl who was named May. That's how little of the show the show itself remains. But all the things you are continues to be performed and uh, has endured as a piece of work. So it's um, there. There is that that sort of sense of musical theater as this undercarriage for an awful lot of popular music. Because as as you know, you think about. Um, the, the Disney uh, you know, high school musical series, the, the whole notion of putting on a show and having there be music in it continues to resonate. And so there's, I think, something about the way these, these songs work to tell a story, to, to put across a mood that carries on because we still have that theater t- tradition, even if the musical styles for a lot of musicals today is different, the function, the, the what the songs are supposed to do remains the same. And so there's that structural thing that I think people recognize uh, unconsciously in these songs that keeps them alive, the songs that is, um, not the people. Uh, <laughs> the other thing is that, that um, when 
Sinatra was doing albums. Um, it helps to think about this from a marketing perspective because doing albums meant you were selling something that was a, more directly attached to hi-fi than 78s or 45s were. And hi-fi, particularly in the late 50s and early 60s, was something that people in stores wanted to sell to consumers to make the consumers feel like they were grown up, like they were classy, like they were successful. Um, it's if you remember the back in the 90s when there was the uh, uh, bachelor pad music um, revival when people were, were looking at these were playing like Esquivel and other early um, hi-fi specifically made for to show off the, the speakers and the uh, frequency response and so forth, that type of lounge music. That was the whole thing. It was the uh, Playboy After Dark, Esquire, um, all these cultural connotations of sophistication, adulthood, and success that were tied into having a hi-fi and listening to music that would show it off and seem grown up. And that appealed to an awful lot of people, not just people in their 40s, 50s, or 60s, but to people in their 20s and 30s who were establishing themselves and wanting to appear serious and grown up in, to their friends and in society. I think that was a big part of, of why Sinatra had the type of impact he had, because by the time he was doing the albums, he was going after a different public image than he had when he was the skinny crooner with Tommy Dorsey's band that had all the Bobby Soxers squealing and, sh and shrieking while he sang. It, it, it was a different mood. It was a different cultural identity for him. It was a different market. And you go through and you identify some of the things that make it difficult for recorded songs to last. Things like being tied to a fad, like the song Convoy or The Streak, uh, both big fads in the 70s, the Cotton Eye Joe, the Macarena. Uh, obviously, the twist would probably be in that. If, if, you, if you hear the twist, it's, a, it's obviously a, nostalg a nostalgic cue. And mm -hmm. you talk about surf music being something that still has currency, but it's automatically used again to signal nostalgia. And then you talk about the Lynn drum and the 808 and, and talk about those two different drum machines a little bit, how they were perceived in the 80s and how they're heard now. Oh yeah, the uh, this is really fascinating because there was um, it, it seems almost inconceivable now that having all electronic instruments do the music was a novelty. But um, back in the early '80s, when Human League um, uh, put out their album Dare, they were extremely proud that there were no guitars or drums on the album at all. It was all synthesizers because that was a kind of a technical breakthrough at that point. But the whole problem with um, synthesizers and percussion is that it was very difficult for a long time to develop circuitry that would make the electronic drums sound like actual drums. Now, there was this uh, small synthesizer drum machine called the Roland 808, which was paired with a, uh, a sequencer, which was a separate unit. You could buy them together and use them to sequence synthesizers and drums and get a whole rhythm track down through automation. But the drum sounds in the 808 were not even attempting to be realistic. I mean, there was a clave sound that was kind of like a little kink, and there was a, a snare drum was sort of like hitting a cardboard box, so it was sort of a pop. 
and there was a bass drum sound that sounded more like a synthesizer bass than a drum. Now, what you could do with that and what people valued at the time is that you could tune that bass so it's, so that you could make it very low or put in the mid-range or whatever. You could have more control over that than you would have over a real drum. And for a while, particularly in um, electronic dance music, it was, it was quite popular. Um, but then this company in Scotland, um, Lynn, came up with the Lynn drum where they actually used um, digital recording to sample actual drum sounds and they programmed put them into a machine so you could program them so that you could actually have a punched in rhythm pattern that would sound like it was played by drums. At the time, this was considered immensely uh, superior to the 808 because it sounded like drums. I mean, people wanted to be able to do the thing and make it sound like they had a drummer. The funny thing is that over time, the Lindrum uh, samples became so widely used that they became recognized as being electronic drums that they recognize as being samples and people say, oh, it's a Lindrum sound. And the, the worst of these was Lindrum clap because it was this uh, very, it was a clap, but it was like one person clapping and it was very sort of gated so that it had a certain amount of presence, but it was immediately recognizable as being not an actual person clapping. And it got very, it got used an awful lot to the point where it became a cliche. And now people sort of laugh and cringe when they hear the Lindrum clap on a record because it is so 80s. Nobody's used it since for that very reason. Whereas the, the 808, because of its versatility, came back into favor around the late 90s. And a lot of producers, particularly hip-hop producers, found that they could get really great bass out of it and use that to make these um, very deep club-sounding grooves, which was kind of the foundation for, for trap music. So it's sort of ironic that the 808, which has been out of production for years, is now tremendously valuable, Where and even though it was a fairly cheap piece of equipment at the time, whereas the Lindrum, which was very expensive at the time, n you know, nobody wants. Let's take a quick sponsor break, and I want to throw some questions at you that you didn't get to address in your original talk. And you end the original presentation with a snippet of a song that you heard a DJ playing at a party which was Michael Jackson's Don't Stop Till You Get Enough. And obviously that's a still a very popular song, very current. People like Mick Ronson are still using that sound, elements of those sounds and hits today. You're still seeing Quincy Jones interviews. But Michael Jackson's public image has taken a series of hits, um, particularly with recent documentary, uh, Leaving Neverland. How do you think that's going to impact his the lifespan of his music because I think about Bing Crosby who and it's really hard to get this today I, I had to read a couple of books by Gary Giddens to really wrap my head around it but Bing Crosby from 1927 to 1977 you could not overstate his musical importance he pretty much invented how to sing to a microphone together with Louis Armstrong he brought swing into American vocal styles he you know, sang everything out of the Great American Songbook, sang songs like White Christmas and God Bless America that became these monumental, monumental uh, record albums. But then after his death, one of his sons wrote a tell-all book, and his public image took hits from which it's never really recovered. And and do you think Michael Jackson's music is going to take on that same taint of being associated with his failings as a person? Um, no, and, uh, you know, I think... 
the imp- well, let's to, to address the the, the the Crosby thing. I think the impact of that book, although tremendous at the time, at at this point is not really part of the factor of why he does not have the staying power that you would expect based on his previous popularity. And I think um, a good uh, sort of counterexample to look at would be Frank Sinatra. Uh, because I mean, in terms of you know revelations about his private life, Frank Sinatra really has turned out to be not any a, a much worse person than Bing Crosby was. I yes. mean, you know, beating wives, hanging out with mobsters, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and yet, Sinatra's uh, stature and, and Sinatra's enduring popularity remains largely unchanged. And I think part of the reason for that is almost nobody, when he was alive, expected that Frank Sinatra was a saint. The revelations about him were not as shocking because Bing Crosby had this image of wholesomeness, and that was tremendously undone by the book by his children. So that's that's a factor there. But the other thing is that Sinatra moved to more of a modern approach, more of a, as I was saying earlier, a hi-fi era approach to music making that Crosby didn't quite do. I mean, Crosby's um, serious uh, American songbook jazz recordings were before the hi-fi era. I mean, by the time he was, it was, you know, Sinatra was making the concept albums. That was when Crosby was essentially doing Hollywood schlock. I don't. I'm, I'm sorry to use that word to talking about songs like "God Bless America," but on a certain level, yeah, compared to in the wee small hours of the morning, it's 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 it sounds schlocky now. So those two things, I think, are part of of why there's that dynamic with 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 those artists, and I, and I honestly expect that um, Michael Jackson is going to. And on the um, Frank Sinatra side of the spectrum, and I say this for a couple reasons. One of which is that um, the musical values in his recorded work still, for the most part, hold up. Um, his later work, I don't think, is going to be as enduring. But um, uh, off the wall and Thriller, and much of the Jacksons and Jackson Five stuff, I think, is just going to endure because the records were just phenomenally well made. I mean, Dancing Machine still sounds fresh and get on the dance floor funky in a way that most records from what was that 1974 don't yeah it was and i just saw back a dance floor the other night my first time out since covid yeah so so that but the other thing is um again although there were a lot of people who were um quote quote shocked by the revelations from leaving Neverland, I don't think anybody was really taken by surprise. Um, the there had been enough stuff about Michael Jackson's weirdness in terms of his general presentation to to the outside world, about his association with young children. Uh, um, uh, there was enough stuff already floating around that um, if you cared enough about Michael Jackson to call yourself a fan, you'd gotten wind of it. And as such, I don't think the uh, 
the, the notion of him being canceled is 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 really going to happen. I mean, he's going to have an asterisk by him, like you know the Chicago Black Sox, but I, it's not going to undo his overall um, endurance as a, a popular artist who people you know are wanted to listen to. And speaking of endurance by popular artists, one factor that you don't really bring up in your talk that that I've been fascinated with for a while is this idea of generational shift. And, and you know, the New Yorker just came out with an article recently, let's stop talking about generations. And I think a lot of those points are valid. But nonetheless, you know, there's this book, uh, Strauss and Howe had a whole series of books about generations that came out in the 90s and the fourth turning and so forth. And they posit this model. I kind of view this stuff as sociological astrology. It's fun to think about. I'm not saying that's got any, you know, actual grounding in reality. But you do sort of see it in, in, as we interact with each other. And he po they posit that there's these generational personality types that cycle through an American life and that there's a profit generation. And the, the baby boomers are uh, an exemplar of that, a generation that comes along, sweeps aside all the culture that came before it, remakes the culture in their own image and dominates the culture for as long as they're alive. And, you know, we're coming to the end of the baby boomers tenure. And you think about an artist like Paul McCartney who came up at the very beginning of the baby booms dominance and has been a dominant performer ever since. We just saw him at the rock and roll hall of fame inducting Dave Grohl. And to me, he's analogous to somebody like Irving Berlin who had hits, who wrote new hits in every decade from the 19 teens to the 1950s, which even Sir Paul didn't do that. You know, most of Paul's hits were written in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and he's kind of been coasting on his catalog ever since. Not that he's not been working hard in live performance, but Berlin was actually writing new songs. Some of his most famous songs, There's No Business Like Show Business, for example, were, you know, in the last decade of his dominance. And yet when the boomers came along and they swept that old, I think they call it the missionary generation, which was people like FDR and Eleanor Roosevelt and others, you know, were kind of swept aside and forgotten. And and we've touched on that with the Great American Songbook. But do you see something similar happening to Paul McCartney if a new generation comes along that's got no truck with the past? Or do you expect because of recorded music for the rock and roll and soul R&B legacy to continue to dominate? Um, this is a this is kind of a naughty question because w w one of the problems I have with that general notion of the ba baby boomers is that they move back in the 1970s. They moved the goalposts. I was born in 1956, and when I was born, I was not part of the baby boom, but by the 70s, I was. Initially, the baby boom was considered um, the immediate post-World War II era, and then it got extended up to, I believe, 1962. Yeah, 62, um, so, 64, somewhere in there. Yeah, so what, what you have is, is um, essentially two sets of people within what you would consider the baby boom. Because, um, I mean, by the current definition, Chuck D is a baby boomer. Johnny Rotten is a baby boomer. All these people who were part of the anti-classic rock chunk of rock history in the 70s were technically from the same generation as the people they were considering old hat. So it's in that sense, um, the uh, Strauss and Howell theory is 
it, it's a little bit complicated because you want to be able to play it two ways. You've got what musically would be two generations sort of shoehorned into what demographically is considered one. So uh, in that level, I th- you know, I'm, I'm a little hesitant to, to put too much in, into to the theory. But um, in terms of um, Paul McCartney for, um, and the Beatles, um, I think that there is an extent to which uh, McCartney, his solo career and his general identity is always going to be sort of secondary to his st- status as being a member of the Beatles. And I'm actually kind of stunned at how much of the Beatles catalog continues to endure in terms of popularity and relevance. I mean, the um, the early stuff, what the, what the French call the yeah, yeah music, um, that does sound kind of dated, sounds kind of anchored to a specific era, but from... Um, Rubber Soul and Revolver on those have those recordings have become canon in kind of the same way that the Great American Songbooks uh, compositions have become canon. Um, people still listen to them. People still perform them. People, I mean, I hear jazz musicians actually playing them in a way that transforms them, which is what the, the jazz musicians do with the Great American Songbook. So, it, I do think that those will carry on now. Whether or not McCartney's solo stuff gets the same treatment, I think, is a bit more dubious. Um, I mean, there are some songs that are um, have enough compositional muscle, I think, that they will endure in various ways, like um, uh, Maybe I'm Amazed or um, My Love or so forth. But I don't see um, Uncle Albert, Admiral Halsey being one of those tunes. Or silly love songs. Well, actually, silly love songs. I I kind of disagree. I think that is, in fact, a very very well written piece of music, and it's um, it, it is admittedly an earworm in an aggressive sense, and I think that does turn some people off. But compositionally, I mean, that's just sheer genius. The, the amount of melodic interest he can get out of um, three chords repeated through the entire song. He is an artist. And let's go ahead and hear Dream a Little Dream of Me by Wayne King from 1931. King, the Wayne King Orchestra, doing Dream a Little Dream of Me from 1931, an example of a song that hasn't survived or a recording that hasn't survived the ages that sounds irredeemably old. And I want to ask about another angle that some musics have taken to survive. And and I've been fascinated in this series with this pivot point in the mid-1940s when jazz goes from being the dominant popular music in America, and it bifurcates. Louis Jordan, who's a swing jazz saxophonist in good standing, having played with Chick Webb and Ella Fitzgerald, becomes the father of R&B and takes the music in one direction. And Charlie Parker, at the same time, who'd been a swing saxophonist with um, multiple orchestras, 
playing at the Savoy in Battle of the Bands, very much playing popular music, writes the tune that becomes inspiration for the Hucklebuck, which is a massively popular dance song. But he and Dizzy Gillespie take the music in an art direction. This happens at the same time as Frank Sinatra and Artie Shaw and others are making the Great American Songbook a canon. And in that way, jazz has survived. It ceased to function as a popular music. You know, Miles Davis and John Coltrane had moments of popularity. There was a little bit of action around jazz fusion. We've seen a tiny bit uh, around Kendrick Lamar's collaborations with some jazz players recently. But nonetheless, jazz music lives now in the academy. It's more known as something that you go down to the Lincoln Center to hear than something you, you expect to hear in a dance club. Do you see that happening again? That's what happened with Western classical music, which, you know, as recently as the 1920s, opera was about a third or a quarter of popular record sales. Somebody like Enrico Caruso was literally the first superstar of recording. We tend to not think of opera as pop music, but it absolutely was pop music. Do you see that happening again? Do you see that being a viable strategy to keep some musics alive? Is, is rock and roll ever going to be, uh, you know, in the academy, as it were? Oh, that's, those are a lot of questions. <laughs> <laughs> Just pick one. <laughs> um, so, um, well, first of all, it, it's it's worth remembering that when um, uh, Jump Blues, which was um, Louis Jordan's, the style of it, that they, the name they gave to the style Louis Jordan played, Jump Blues was not... An anomaly made out of whole cloth. It just happened then. I mean, if you listen to um, uh, One O'Clock Jump by the Count Basie Orchestra, that has the same kind of driving backbeat that later Jump Blues records had. It's just that the, the Basie band used the groove as a means of fueling improvisation, whereas the Jump Blues bands focused on the groove where the improvisations were more like ornamentation. So uh, it, it's, it was kind of a natural development, but it was something that was, that had been always there in, uh, in the black American side of uh, the jazz business in the, in the thirties and forties. So it, it wasn't quite as much um, uh, <clears throat> a bifurcation as it was a simplification and you know it just um also the fact that after the war it became much more expensive to tour a big band than to tour a combo so um people were more inclined to hire jordan because he had popular records and he didn't cost as much so so there are there were those were factors that also happened and, and you know so it's not quite as clean a break but the interesting thing to me about the other side that you 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 mentioned the uh, the beboppers is that on a certain level, the beboppers can be seen as being analogous to the hip-hop movement in the 70s, where um, essentially they were interested in making the music they wanted to hear. They were not, uh, as you say, they were not courting popularity, but that was intentional. They they had fun. They certainly had, had concerts with, with enthusiastic audiences, but they were not intending to address the mainstream. And that is, um, I think, the really interesting thing, because that is something that really changed popular music in general, the notion that you could actually make a living without trying to be popular. 
because previously that's that was the only reason people got into popular music was to make make money and be popular i mean there was not the notion of individual artistic expression and you know this is something very parallel to what rock fans started observing with uh, dylan and the late beatles and some of the other rockers in the 60s that they were willing to go their own way i mean that's exactly what um you know bird and diz did so that's um i say, i think that kind of dynamic is always a possibility in music and i mean i think um to some extent we're we're seeing it now in some of the um uh, electronic underground music that is um beginning to sort of coalesce around um, um of course, this is when I get to the point of the conversation. I forget the word I'm trying to say. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the, the, the sort of glitch, the glitch uh, production, um, the um, dubstep, and no, no, no. I mean, I'm thinking of, of the, the more pop end, end things. Um, there was the uh, gosh, um, the Avicii type stuff, or I'm sorry. The Avicii, I think this is the name of the kid that passed away, but was essentially oh. a classical composer, sort of, but making electronic dance music. Right, but, right. No, I'm not talking, not the EDM stuff. This is um, much more underground, but it's, um, I keep thinking dream pop, but it's not actually the, the word. It's. Uh, yeah, um, there's all and, kinds of the lo fi um, video game stuff. There's trance, which is more pop. Um, the you know the electro revival in the in the 2010s just trap drill um yeah i i can name every genre i can think of and not get the one <laughs> that yeah. you're looking for um, but but you know i think the thing is that there's this there is um a, a sort of self-referential quality to that music which in dance music is um kind of a radical notion i mean th there's always been the this sense of the dance floor as a refuge and that's that that theme in terms of lyrics in terms of vocal approaches has basically been common currency since um house emerged out of disco and um <clears throat> There is that that sense of community that comes from being on the dance floor, but what I find interesting is now we're seeing dance uh, dance oriented artists who are making recordings just to please themselves, much in the way that the beboppers you know, were playing jazz, playing fast, and playing hard changes and playing chord extensions because they found those things to be interesting to do, and I think that's the dynamic that will cause change and cause um the our notions of what standard pop should sound like to alter over time so so i think you know there is a germ of that happening right now it just um i am <clears throat> unfortunately too old to remember what the what the name of the genre is <laughs> yeah there's a bunch uh, uh um, there's glitch glitch hop lo-fi uh, neuro funk hyper pop yeah hyper pop hyper pop hyper that's what i was thinking of okay cool yes thank you because, You're I mean, the whole the hyper pop movement is is it's um, clearly just at its beginning, but it seems to be um, in terms of an aesthetic really different from a lot of the dance music that, that we're familiar with. And I think it is something to definitely watch in terms of um, having interesting artists doing interesting things because they want to. 
cool. I will check that out. And let's hear our last song. This is Mama Cass's version with the Mamas and the Papas of Dream a Little Dream to Me, which I think holds a little bit more cultural currency than the Wang King 1931 version. Night breezes seem to whisper, I love you. Birds singing in the sycamore tree. Dream a little dream of me. Say nighty night and kiss me. Just hold me tight and tell me you'll miss me. While I'm alone and blue as can be. Dream a little dream of me. That was Cass Elliot and the Mamas and the Papas doing Dream a Little Dream of Me, which we heard the 1931 version. And as we agree, because of the recording quality, because it's something about the presentation, Cass, not a big swinger in her vocals, but but swings more than Wayne King. Uh, that that seems to have lasted. Do you see this Dorian Gray effect lasting indefinitely? Or what are things you would look for to see look forward to, to predict a sea change when stuff like Al Green and the Beatles might not have the same kind of cultural currency it has now? Well, I mean, it's the, the, this, the key thing to watch is, is the dance beat, is how the beat is articulated. I mean, um, the backbeat, which was the, the real turning point in from swing to R&B and, and rock and roll, the backbeat changed everything in terms of the way rhythm is felt because you could still swing a melody over it but the, the it felt different i mean the swing beat was um emphasizing one and three so you had one two and three four and the, the backbeat is boom boom pop boom boom pop boom boom pop one and two three and four it was putting things on two and four, which was a much more African-derived approach to rhythm, much more rhythmically vital, and really just completely changed the way people listen to music and dance to it. Now, the only thing I've heard in the last couple of uh, decades that have been indicating a change is in hip-hop, um, there there is a sort of tendency to have a secondary accent where it's eighth note after beat. So it's uh, one and two and three and four and so you, you it makes the it's got the same structure as the backbeat, but it makes it feel more vitalized, more more uh exciting because it's a little bit faster. I think the first time that cropped up in popular music was in uh, the Temptations Papa was a Rolling Stone. Um, but it really, if, if you listen to particularly eighties hip hop, that became a, a big thing in, in the middle of the decade and, and sort of dominated the way a lot of the music rhythms were articulated. Um, and the next big thing after that is the Dembo beat, the boom, pop, boom, pop, boom, pop, boom, pop, boom, pop, which is, came out of reggaeton, but is all over music these days. I mean, I, I heard a K-pop single i can't remember what it was called but i heard a k-pop single recently that had, was completely built around that beat and it um if something like the dembo becomes the dominant rhythm as opposed to being an offshoot of the current rhythm um then that could make 
the old backbeat records sound kind of old. I mean, if you listen to the difference between, say, um, the way the Beatles played rockabilly tunes and the way the originals were played, you'll notice that there is a difference in the rhythmic articulation, that there is more energy in what the Beatles are doing because they're doing something that much more strongly emphasizes the backbeat. And so that's the kind of level of rhythmic energy that you you need to pay attention to to get a sense of whether something's going to endure or sound sound old-fashioned. And I think there may be... There may be a turning point ahead in terms of some of these um, dance rhythms, but I don't think we're there yet. And um, there, there's still enough interest in terms of artists and producers to reference older recordings. I mean, um, like you mentioned with uh, uh, some of the current hip hop records where they've, where they've been working with jazz musicians and bringing in older sounds and recontextualizing them. That's that's going to be sort of the wild card because if if things stay in the public's ear, they're less likely to be dismissed as being old-fashioned or not part of what their life is. Absolutely. And uh, the show has been about the Dorian Gray effect, or why some recordings don't age while others do. My guest has been J.D. Constantine, riffing off of a talk he gave at the Museum of Pop Culture in September of 2020. J.D., thanks so much. Thanks. Thank you very much. I'm glad to have done this. Uh, I'm really happy you asked me. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate welcomes Art Tavana to discuss his book, Goodbye Guns and Roses, The Crime, Beauty, and Amplified Chaos of America's Most Polarizing Band. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.